Good morning. It is Kale and Company. Great to have you along with us on this Tuesday. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental CoversMe.com. And on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, time for our monthly insurance installment and our guest on uh, this segment of Kale and Company as we take an inside look at the New Hampshire Insurance Department is the Insurance Department's Fraud Director, Brendan Harris. Brendan, uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it is uh, our pleasure. And uh, first of all, uh, Brendan, what led you to a, a career in the field of uh, insurance fraud? Uh, well, initially, I always wanted to be a police officer, and uh, after I got out of the Army, the Virginia Beach Police Department uh, offered me a position where I stayed and uh, made the rank of Master Police Officer and Detective, and then I retired from there and still wanted to keep my hand in the pot of doing kind of uh, investigations, so some insurance companies hired me to do fraud investigations for a little while, and then ultimately, the Attorney General's office here in New Hampshire asked me to put in for this position about 15 years ago, and I've been loving it, and i got another five years to go. So 15 years on the job, and I, I'm sure you have seen all types of fraud that you could uh, possibly imagine. <laughs> I, I think I have. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the, the number one source of insurance fraud in the state of New Hampshire? Uh, it's something called past posting, and it's because up here in New Hampshire, people don't have to have insurance policies on their cars. Right. A lot of people choose to try to save that money, and then unfortunately, something happens. They get into a car accident, and then they find themselves, uh, especially if they're at fault in the accident, where they have damage to their car and someone else's car, and potentially some injuries, and there's no insurance coverage. Uh, they panic, and then they buy an insurance policy after the crash, and then they file a claim and they lie about when the accident happened, trying to get the insurance company to pay for all the coverages. And that's the number one insurance fraud that we see in New Hampshire. So that is after they buy a policy. I mean, when the accident happens, they, they don't have insurance. And then they buy a policy, let's say that day or within an hour or two of, uh, of the accident, and then try to uh, post-date the accident, right? Right. Yeah. Um, the insurance department just had me do a quick segment on their YouTube channel, and it's, it's kind of a funny story of a, a gentleman who was driving his motorcycle through the. It was the winter time, but it was one of those really nice days where people decide to take their motorcycles out, um, but haven't put insurance on them yet, because most people take insurance off the motorcycles during the winter time. Um, he took the motorcycle out. He was driving around through the mountains. He crashed his motorcycle, ruptured his spleen. He was in pretty rough shape. And he did not have insurance on it. So while he's lying on the ground at somebody's front yard with a ruptured spleen, he's calling the insurance company to buy insurance yeah. and claim that the accident happened shortly after he bought the insurance policy. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure you, you've heard uh, countless cases along those lines uh, over the 10 years that you've been on the job or 15 years, right? 15 years on, on the job. Uh, yes. Does the fact uh, that we don't require auto insurance or vehicle uh, insurance here in New Hampshire uh, lead to, uh, you know, claimants creating those those false uh, records and uh, those fake records? I mean, do you see it more 
in a state like New Hampshire where we don't require insurance? Yes, I was down in Virginia for about nine years doing the same uh, type of work. And down there, you were required to have insurance. You didn't have to have comp or collision, but you had to have at least liability insurance. So the number of cases of past posting in a state like that were far less than in New Hampshire, where there's quite a few people driving around without any car insurance. Yep. And they're just taking the gamble. It's, um, it's a dangerous gamble to take, because if you crash into somebody and you hurt them badly, um, you can just imagine what that's going to happen to you when you have to now be responsible for their injuries and the lawsuits and the damages, et cetera. And it's just going to wipe you out. Do you have any idea uh, how many, what, what percentage of people in New Hampshire do not have uh, vehicle insurance? No, it's a statistic we really can't put our fingers on. Um, some states like Massachusetts, you can actually track through DMV who has insurance. Like, for instance, if you and I lived in Massachusetts, uh, DMV could look it up and say, Brendan Harris, it, you have State Farm insurance, here's your policy number, and here's your coverage, period. It all gets filtered through DMV. Uh, in New Hampshire, we don't have that, so there's no way to track whether or not somebody has insurance, and if they do, who it's with or, or when it was in force. So is insurance uh, fraud on the increase in New Hampshire, Brendan? Yes, sir. It, it really is. Um, we get about 300 referrals that come across my desk every year, and um, it, it's definitely on the increase that some interesting stats that uh, I was in a training for all the fraud directors around the country. There's a, a, a organization called the Coalition Against Insurance Fraud, and they had spent quite a few years putting together stats uh, to talk about just how much insurance fraud costs everybody. And the last time they had done this was over like 10 years ago. So these numbers are now fresh. They're actually as of this year. Uh, but insurance fraud costs $308.6 billion annually in the United States. Wow. And just for a little comparison, that's about $3,750 per year for every average American family. That's what you're paying extra because of insurance fraud. Wow. And uh, is, is insurance fraud uh, on, on, uh, on, on vehicles the uh, most frequently perpetrated uh, flaw, uh, fraud that you find? Uh, it's what I find uh, the most popular up here in New Hampshire, again, because there's no insurance required. Right. Um, but we also are, are seeing lots of fake medical records. Uh, that's been the newest trend, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure why it started. I think it's because of COVID. People started working from home. They were taking home their business computers, which had a lot more fancy software on them. People had a little bit more time on their hands, and they started realizing just how easy it was to take an invoice or a medical record or whatever document you want, scan it, and alter it to say anything you want, and then submit it, and it looks perfectly legit. And unless you go back to the source, like the hospital or wherever, um, you don't know it's fake. Mm. And so that puts a bit more burden on the carriers to do a lot more verification on every single form that comes in, and the more things slip through the cracks. But these yeah, these fake records are just getting out of control. So it, it can be faked pretty well, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, I did it just for just to play around and see if I could do it, because I'm not great on computers. And <laughs> I took a document, and I scanned it in, and I played with it. And I, it, was, it was more of a, a game. I, just, I had to say almost anything I wanted in a matter of minutes, and it looked perfect. 
So even if you have uh, insurance uh, on your vehicle, let's say, uh, are there those who still falsify or uh, inflate vehicle repair charges, that sort of thing? Uh, You'll find times where people might enhance a little damage on their car or try to claim some pre-existing damage. So, for instance, there was a dent on your car and you never really got it fixed, and then you actually suffer a real loss. And perhaps the damage is close in proximity to where this old damage is. Right, yeah. People will turn around and say, well, you know, that's actually part of the damage that just occurred. And they'll try to get pre-existing damage fixed on their cars. Um, it happens. It, it's not It's not real prevalent. Um, not like the other cases that we're seeing. Right, yeah, exactly. So does the department, uh, I'm sure have you have cases of people that are, reporting that their vehicles have been stolen that uh, probably really aren't stolen in, in reality? Yes. Um, I used to work a lot of those. For some reason down in Virginia, uh, reporting your car stolen and later found burned was almost like a popular fraud scheme. And I was working uh, several of those. And I finally came to my own determination that if your car is reported stolen, it's found burned in a rural area, you know, about 24 hours after the event, um, you're probably the person that did it or had somebody else do it. Um, and I only came up with that statistic because I worked so many of those cases and almost all of them, the insured finally broke down, cried, and confessed to burning the car and then explaining why they did it. Um, but I I've, I've even had one person that actually reported their car stolen, they set it on fire, and he didn't do it for the insurance fraud, but he had actually done it because he had killed his uh, father's neighbor and was driving around with the body in his car and panicked. Uh, so he dumped the body out of the car, and then he set it on fire at a different location to cover up the crime scene. So he really wasn't trying to steal money from the insurance company. He was just trying to cover up a crime scene. Wow. Boy, I, you, you have experienced a lot uh, in, in your time as the uh, fraud director for the New Hampshire Insurance Department. And uh, uh, any other stories along those lines? I mean, that, that's really, uh, that, that's an incredible story. Uh, but uh, I'm sure there are others that uh, come close to that. Oh, there's, there's so many insurance fraud schemes that run around. There's, there's one particular insurance uh, it's like if you have homeowner's insurance and you have jewelry and you say you're walking along the beach and you had your $10,000 diamond ring on your finger and then you got home and realized it's now missing, it's, it's called mysterious disappearance and it's actually a legitimate insurance claim. Well, hold it right there and, and we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll pursue that a little bit more, Brenda, but we have to take a break right now. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Brendan Harris. Brendan is the fraud director of the New Hampshire Insurance Department. This is our monthly dive into the uh, insurance, uh, well, insurance agency, the uh, New Hampshire Department of Insurance. And uh, we, we like to go behind the scenes and try to find out what we can about the New Hampshire uh, Insurance Department and uh, talk to some of the uh, the folks who, uh, who work there and uh, handle the insurance and uh, help you out along the way as well. We'll take a break. Kale and Company continues right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Our guest today is Brendan Harris. Brendan is the 
Fraud Director at the New Hampshire Insurance Department. Great to have Brendan with us today. We're talking about all, we're talking about all sorts of insurance fraud. And you mentioned uh, a scenario whereby someone is at uh, a beach and uh, they uh, report the disappearance of a diamond ring or other another piece of uh, valuable jewelry. And uh, it, you, you call it what, mysterious disappearance, or uh, how, do you, how do you classify that? Yes, it's, a, it's called mysterious disappearance. It's a, um, a lawful, allowed loss to have on your homeowner's insurance policy. So essentially, if, if you accidentally lose a piece of expensive jewelry that's on the policy that's been scheduled for however much it, it might be worth, um, then you can file an insurance claim for that lost piece of jewelry. The, uh, the trick comes in with the people who, I, who decide to sell a piece of jewelry or pawn a piece of jewelry or, in some cases, never get rid of it at all, just claim that it was missing, and then try to file an insurance claim for that expensive piece of jewelry. And it was a, a couple of examples I, I could provide. Like, for instance, one gentleman really made the mistake here in Manchester where he had reported uh, some of his expensive jewelry missing and he was paid over $20,000 by an insurance company. And when they made a referral because he filed a second claim that was similar for another expensive piece of jewelry, they thought it was suspect and sent it to us for further investigation. We ended up finding that the first set of jewelry was actually pawned. And throughout the investigation, I secretly recorded some conversations, uh, used all the tools that we have in our a bag of tricks, and was able to establish enough probable cause to do a search warrant on his house to find that jewelry. What we ended up finding was, yes, the piece of jewelry I was looking for, but we also found a uh, safe full of crack cocaine and a bunch of stolen ah, handguns. Oh, boy, you, you got the mother load there, huh? <laughs> yes, and because of his uh, unfortunate prior criminal history, he's now spending 17 years in jail. Wow. All for starting an insurance fraud claim in New Hampshire. Yeah. Well, you, you guys get the job done, obviously. And uh, the myst uh, mysterious disappearance uh, rider on your insurance policy. Now, uh, do you have to uh, claim, you know, the items that, uh, you know, that, that you consider valuable do you, when, you, when you take out that rider on your insurance policy? Yeah, generally what you'll do is if you have an expensive piece of jewelry, you'll take it to a jewelry sh uh, shop and they will give you an appraisal to tell you what the value is, and then you share that appraisal with your insurance company, mm -hmm. and then they underwrite it and decide how much extra it's going to cost for you to have that on your insurance policy. Uh, you know, in, in one particular scheme, that's what the person did. They, they bought a, a nice diamond ring. It was worth about 26000 but they bought it at a consignment shop for $12,000. Uh, they showed it to their agent. They got it appraised. Put it on the insurance policy, made sure it was flashed around so everybody could see it, and then claimed that her cat had kicked it down the toilet and it was gone forever. When, in fact, as the investigation went on, we found that she had actually returned the ring to the exact same consignment shop she had bought it from and was trying to sell it uh, for the 12000 to get her money back, while at the same time filing a claim for 26000 to an insurance company. Mm, wow. Wow. Well, I see when you uh, go on the, uh, the the cover page of your uh, New Hampshire Insurance Department uh, website at uh, nh.gov, you have a, an icon there that uh, you can press and uh, report insurance fraud. You can fill out a form 
uh, right there on the website and uh, report insurance uh, fraud, correct? Yes, sir. Um, if you go on the New Hampshire Insurance Department, I think you hit the legal button, and then there's a fraud button. Yeah. And from there, an online fraud referral form that uh, anyone can fill out and submit, and it'll come directly to my desk. And it'll be reviewed, and uh, we will see if we can open a case on it, depending on what information it contains. So uh, we were talking about the, the largest source of fraud uh, being uh, with uh, with vehicles. Uh, I'm sure from time to time you, you find that uh, some accidents uh, have been staged for the benefit of collecting some insurance money. Yeah, there is a, a scheme of people who will stage car crashes or buy cars that are already damaged. Um, because you don't have to show your car to the insurance agent or the insurance company at the time you buy the policy, then people were buying cars that were already had suffered plenty of pre-existing damage on them and then would report that the car had crashed or, or just, you know, made up some sort of a, a loss and that said that all this damage occurred as a result of this loss and would try to collect for maybe even a total loss of a vehicle that was actually a total loss when they bought it. Uh, so we'll have some of that. We, we've had cases, I remember, down in Virginia where people were staging car crashes and we actually got a tip on it. And we put video cameras out where they were going to crash the cars. <laughs> and we had those little uh, those cameras that you see attached to trees and stuff. And it was going to be on an off on the highway. And so we actually had the video of them staging the car crash, the conversations and everything. Um, and it was it was really nice video to get. Well, you mentioned one instance uh, where uh, someone who was uh, involved in crime for uh, a, a long time was was caught, and uh, a lot of other stuff was uh, discovered at the same time, as you just mentioned moments ago. How much insurance crime is committed by, uh, you know, perpetual offenders or perhaps even uh, organized crime? Well, we, we definitely have our pros that we keep an eye on. Um, we've had one gentleman in uh, New Hampshire that had created actually four fake insurance companies and throughout him selling surety bonds, um, which came to the tune of about $68 million worth Whoa. of bacon. Um, wow. We finally were able to stop him with the help of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. We did some search warrants on his home, and we were able to get him at a FedEx store on video actually mailing the fake surety bonds from New Hampshire to another state. And that was enough for them to bring the indictments. I think it was 10 felony counts of mail fraud and wire fraud. Um, so you do have these people who are pros that really, they go for the big money and, uh, and are very successful, for, at least for a while. Uh, yeah, uh, at least for a while until they're, uh, you know, thrown in prison for a long period of time. But $68 million from, you say, four uh, fake insurance companies? Yes, yeah. and it's kind of funny how he got caught. He, had, he actually was a real licensed insurance agent in New Hampshire, and he had had a 1-800 number that he had loved, and he had used it for years and years and years. And then when he created his fake insurance companies, he continued to use that same fake 1-800 number, and that's how I was able to track him down each time. He just wouldn't give up the 1-800 number, and that was his biggest mistake. Wow. What, what about uh, insurance fraud regarding, like, staged 
home or or business fires when homes are you know uh, in, you know are intentional intentionally burned down to collect insurance money or uh, there might be a, a business that is uh, you know burnt to the ground as as a result of someone trying to collect insurance money do you see that very often you'll see it every now and again um, usually the state fire marshal's office gets the call of a large fire like that um, and sometimes by the time I find out about it, it's after the insurance company's already received the claim, gone through the claims process, done an examination under oath from the um, insured, and, and all these sorts of things. So you know, sometimes even months have gone by before I even realized there was a fire. So that, that makes it a little bit more of a challenge. But we've really started a good partnership with the fire marshal's office. They're a fantastic group of people. And we're beginning to work some cases together now earlier on. So we will have more war stories about people setting their homes and businesses on fire in the future. You know, I, I get the feeling uh, uh, from you that uh, you know your your background in uh, in law enforcement. Uh, you know, it was certainly a you know great to, tool to have when you entered this job with the New Hampshire Insurance Department. I, I get the feeling you you enjoy uh, investigating uh, these uh, these fraud cases. I, I got to be honest, I really do. I, I remember when I was a uniform policeman in Virginia Beach, I used to think, I can't believe they pay me to wake up and do this job every day because I do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> and this job is very similar. I, 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 I'm truly blessed. Well, I'll tell you what, you've been a, a terrific guest and a great insight into uh, some fraudulent activities that take place even here in New Hampshire. Although we we, uh, we don't sound as if we're as devious as those people in New Ham- in uh, Virginia, I should say. You know, it, it seems like they're a little bit more devious down there than we are here in New Hampshire, but that's just the impression I get. Uh, Brendan Harris, thanks so much for being with us today. It's been great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really good time. All right. Brendan Harris, the fraud director of the New Hampshire Insurance Department, here on our monthly insurance segment right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Com. Coming up right after the break, we'll talk with an uh, uh, incredible woman, great author. She has a new book on the market. Alexandra Allred will be joining us right here. Kale and Company Live, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Don't touch that dial. Welcome back. It's Kale and Company Live right here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental is the place to go for individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And our guest on this portion of the program is the author of a a brand new book, When Women Stood, the Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. And we welcome Alexandra Allred. Alexandra, how are you today? I am great. Thank you for having me. Well, it is uh, our distinct pleasure, and you certainly have a a fascinating background. Born in Frankfurt, West Germany, and raised in the Russian-Soviet Federative Socialist Republic with your parents and one sister. Your dad was an American diplomat uh, stationed throughout Europe. Uh, Tell us about your upbringing there, you know, in in those uh, countries and uh, 
uh, and and the impact that it had on your life as an athlete uh, and an author. Well, you know, and I I love how you phrase that. I over the years, I the most honest answer is I didn't understand that it was different until I started talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I you know I do believe it's a a bit of a family joke. My sister was also on the U.S. Women's Bobsled Team with me. And we've both been in martial arts and we're both adrenaline junkies. And we realized one day talking, you know, probably being chased by the KGB and and watching our father do what he did, that probably had some impact on why we love the sports that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned the uh, the bobsled team and, and you certainly made history in 1994 by uh, making and, and forming the U.S. women's uh, bobsled team winning the national competition in that sport. And at the time, four months pregnant were you with your second child. And uh, I guess you were part of a study. Is that correct? That's right. So Case Western University, um, they at the time, they but there was some research on long-distance runners, but that was about that was about it and somehow through the net the sporting world they caught wind that there was a person who was doing heavy heavy lifting plyometric sprinting and so they got in contact with me and asked me if I would participate in the study and of course I said yes because I wanted to make sure that I could safely continue for that the health of my baby so it really was the best of of both worlds for for Case Western and myself because when I trained, I was literally hooked up to EKG leads, heart monitor, fetal monitor, oxygen mask. I mean, they were, and so I I could actually hear the heartbeat of wow. my baby. So I knew if I was doing too much, I could, her heartbeat would slow down if mine went too high. And so it was it was a great security blanket. So I knew that what I was doing, I, you know, it was safe for the baby. So your recommendation uh, for uh, women that are pregnant at this time uh, to uh, to take a, a bobsled ride? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when I, it's funny that when I won, um, you know, good-naturedly, but my they, everybody was chanting, no fair, she's cheating, there's two in the sled. <laughs> but what's fantastic is, and it gets, it, it's not spoken about enough times. So I won, and I was four months pregnant, and the woman who won second for U.S. Nationals, Liz Parsmedstadt, out of Minnesota, she was three months pregnant. Wow! Wow! I, you know, so yeah, there are absolutely there are um, there is a steroidal effect from this surge of hormones when you're pregnant. That you know, maybe I did cheat. I didn't mean to, but maybe I did cheat. <laughs> well, uh, so you would recommend uh, exercise, uh, you know, deep into the pregnancy. How how uh, long into a pregnancy do you suggest that uh, women maintain a an active uh, lifestyle through exercise? Uh, Ken, I love that you're asking this question because nobody ever does. So yeah, so when I started. Um, there was almost no information out there for most athletes or most pregnant women. So most of your, certainly your female listeners know the truth of this, which is so for forever, women did little to nothing when they were pregnant. So after this, after this study came out, really it was in the early 2000s as the internet began to become in every household. 
people started Googling and my name would pop up a lot because for for a while there, I really was the poster child for the newest study because there was nothing else. It wasn't that I did anything um, so spectacular, but it was just finding that there was information. So they, so I started, I worked for about two decades as a fitness expert, just telling women, yeah, you need to move throughout your whole pregnancy because childbirth is hard work. People don't, it, your upper body, everything is, everything is working. And, and, you know, if you're lucky, you have short labor, but there are many stories of of women 20 plus hours. So you really want to, you know, I, I tell, especially if she's an athlete, I say, you know what, tap into your athlete's mind because now you're not working out for so much fitness for you, but you're working out for your Olympics is coming up in about nine months. And so you better be ready to, <laughs> to, to perform. Yeah. So absolutely you stay active the whole, you know, the entire pregnancy through. And of course, everybody's different. So I don't know, you know, I always say you got to talk to your doctor first and then work from there. Well, I, I have a, a vested interest, and I, and I ask you that because uh, my, my daughter, who's expecting in, in June, is a very active exerciser, and I just want to set my mind at rest that it's okay to do these sorts of things. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely, and I'll tell you the only other thing, and it's it makes people squirmy, but I also teach, um, I teach at Charleston State University, and I teach tomorrow's health and uh, sports professionals, right? And so I always have a mixed class of male and female athletes. And so my, my, my male student athletes get a little squirmy on me on this one, but here's my, here's my advice to your daughter and anyone else. Keep working out. It's great, but you need to make sure that you are hydrated, but you also need to make sure you don't overheat. That's, you know, doctors always say, don't let your heart rate get over 140 beats per minute while working out while pregnant. That's not actually accurate anymore because elite athletes can go higher than that. But what's most important is your daughter, her inner core temperature does not get too high. It should not ever get over 100, 100.5 is what I always tell my own clients. And so the, <laughs> the only way down. to know. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm writing you that gotta down. Use a, yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's, it's squirmy, but you need to use a rectal thermometer. And so your daughter needs to stop halfway into a workout, run to the bathroom, check her inner core temperature. She's safe. Very good. Very good. Our guest is Alexandra Allred and uh, a prolific author, not only a, a tremendous athlete, but a prolific author as well with over 20 books to her credit. But uh, as a student at uh, Texas A&M, you were diagnosed with dyslexia. Yes. Well, you did your research. Yeah. I, I tried. <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> and so to this day, that's one of the reasons that I love research so much because, you know, I'll, I go and I talk to my favorite age to talk to is I talk to third graders. I love to go to talk to third graders to different schools because that's a, that's a pivotal age. And I always tell kids, who, you know, don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but who here thinks, who here really thinks maybe you're not that smart? And they still, the hands will always go up or I'll see little, little heads nodding. And I always promise them, I say, you know what, you're, you're just learning a different way. And so I have my whole spiel that I tell everybody. But for me, I really genuinely thought that I was dumb because I just couldn't, I couldn't, my, 
to be specific, I have dyscalculia, so I flip numbers. So for me, a multiple choice test or math, anything, a t- time to the, it's really difficult. And even to this day, if I get tired, I'll start flipping things around. So my editors for my books have their work cut out for them when they get me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, in, in some of my research, I learned that uh, you and your family moved from Ohio to Texas in uh, 2001, and subsequently, uh, your youngest child, uh, Tommy, developed a sequence of pneumonias, bronchitis, and other asthma-related complications, and you were determined uh, to get to the source of your, your son's issues. Yes. I. We've always been very active, outdoorsy people, and all of a sudden, you know, when you have a child who um, he's been hospitalized numerous times, there's got to be a reason. And as I started talking to other parents, I found out that where we had moved, um, they the cement stacks were releasing incredibly hazardous material. And um, so, yeah, I, I, that became my next Olympic Games. Well, I, I guess so. And uh, we still have lots to cover here. We have to take a quick break. Our guest is uh, the author of a new book, and we will talk about it during our next segment, When Women Stood, the untold history of females who changed sports and the world. Alexandra Allred is our guest. We will be right back. It is Kale and Company right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back. Kale and Company right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental, and very pleased to have with us fascinating guest, Alexandra Allred. And uh, let's talk about your latest book, one of many, When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. And uh, all the women in this book uh, refused to accept the, sca- the uh, status quo and uh, fought to make things better for themselves and their peers. And we're talking about in, in all walks of life here. Absolutely, yes. You know, I was thinking about what during the break, I, I, this is a story you can appreciate, but while I, so my, particularly my college students, this, they don't, they really genuinely don't recognize how much work was put in to how they're, the access that they have to sports today, right? And just in 1994, that wasn't that long ago, um, I was living, we were living at the Olympic Training Center that bought this, the beginnings of a women's bobsled program. And I remember we were sitting in the cafeteria and this mob of really impressive looking female athletes walked into the cafeteria and the group of us, a small group of us were saying, man, who are these women? And it was the beginning of what would become the Olympic women's hockey team. Ah, yes. But, yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that, but I remembered yep. just thinking, we, wow, this is a really tough-looking group of women here. And, yeah, it turned <laughs> out that, was the, that was the hockey team, yeah. Uh, we had a great was, uh, Olympic uh, hockey player, uh, Tara Mounsey from uh, Concord, New Hampshire, who uh, was a, a member yeah. of a, a gold medal-winning team in, in, the, uh, in women's hockey. And uh, she actually, in high school, played in uh, the the boys league. She she didn't play with the girls. She played with the boys. And there was one year uh, that she was honestly, and I, I broadcast many of her games. She was the best player in the state 
I, I mean, I'm talking, yeah, yeah uh, boys here. Yeah, so <laughs> she she was amazing. Yeah, I and I'm I'm so happy you shared that because that through throughout women's sports history, that's been the case because because women weren't allowed in sports before the 1960s. Really, I mean, they really weren't. Girl, there were those girls who would cross over to just they they didn't care. They wanted to play, so they played with the boys team. And again and again and again, they would wind up being one of the best, if not the best, on the team. But you know, the you know the media just that wasn't something anybody really wanted to write about. And so you know that I it took me about three years of really hard research of going into and going to unusual sources to find these women because the mainstream media then just didn't cover those kind of stories. So yeah, I always love those kind of stories. Yeah. Now, who are some of the women that uh, that you feature in the book? Well, I have over 400 women wow. in this book. Wow. Yes. And so I, it was not my intention to go all the way back into history. I, but I really realized I had, I, I kept going back decade after decade, after century, after century to really kind of give the reader a grasp of how it's always been a no-no for females to be in sports. So the fight to get to where we are is, is really fantastic. And my favorite part is because I teach from the book, of course, to my own college students. At the end of every semester, how often, not only my male students, but my female students will say, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the fight was this hard. You know, and so... Just and the the story I love to tell the most is um, bicycles. So in the late 1890s, when women were finally allowed to get on a bicycle, and they weren't really allowed; they just did it. It was such an out. It was so outrageous that local physicians across the country were writing articles and publishing them in the newspaper, warning women not to get on a bicycle. Because of this strenuous activity of pedaling, she might get bicycle face. <laughs> <laughs> bicycle face, huh? <laughs> bicycle face, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we would not want to get bicycle. So, yeah, even today I'll work, I'm working out with my buddy and I'll look over at her sometimes and I'll go, do I have bicycle face right now? <laughs> <laughs> that is fun. I've never heard that term before. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, nobody has. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who stood out uh, among the, the folks? Now, obviously you didn't talk to all uh, 400, but I imagine you, you interviewed some of them. Who, who stood out? Whose who stories uh, stood out to you the most? Well, first I'll say to that comment, another thing that I love so much is it's astonishing really who I who did make themselves available to me. And over the years, I've talked to Mary Lou Retton and Peggy Fleming and Jackie Joyner-Kersey and, I mean, just so many, Nadia Comaneci and so many athletes, Cheryl Swoops, and I talked to members of the U. By living at the Olympic Training Center, of course, I also got to talk to... Um, members of the U.S. Women's Hockey and ball, every winter sport you can imagine, but also Christine Lilly, who recently retired from the U.S. Women's Soccer. Mm, um, yeah. She, you know, she talked to me in the book. But one of my favorite interviews is Gina Lucrenza, and there's no reason your listeners would know her name, but the story behind it: she is a ten-time All-American NCAA long-distance runner, and she established Trail Sisters, and it's a nonprofit organization to get women of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds just outside taken to the trail. But she was so incredible because I just happened to be up in the mountains 
and saw this woman just tanking because it was re- the weather was really hot. And I so I, I had my four wheeler, and so I said, "Do you need a ride back to your campsite?" We were literally in the middle of nowhere. She was in. She was at her sixteenth mile and had another sixteen to go to get back. And I said, "Oh, geez." So I said, "Jump on." And so I, I we went over the mountains. And I literally interviewed this woman and found out how incredible she is by just taking her back to her where her campsite was. Wow! Yeah, you know. So that's the fun of it is is that I realized there are amazing female athletes literally everywhere. I mean, even in the middle of the nowhere mountains. And so I I really embraced her story, but. Yes, there were so many amazing athletes. I, I got to talk to Catherine Switzer, who, of course, is the, um, the her pictures are famous from when she ran the Boston Marathon. Yes, of course, yeah. And, and, yeah, and was attacked. So, yeah, just women, Nancy Lieberman, um, Nancy Hogshead, they made themselves available to talk because this is such an important topic. Uh, this must have uh, taken years to put together. It did. Yeah, I'm sure. This is my baby, and I love it. Wow. And when did it come out? Uh, Last month. Ah, okay. So uh, where is it available? Truly, any bookstore, if you've you've got a favorite bookstore, they've got it. I know Walmart.com is carrying it, Amazon, of course. So it's, it's easy to find. And and the fight continues. I mean, there are still obviously some uh, shortcomings to to overcome. In what areas of of society, uh, Alexandra, do, do women remain uh, being treated in a less than satisfactory way compared to their male counterparts? Well, there's and that. Oh my goodness, that's such a fantastic question. So. The way that we're covered in media, you know, I joke all the time to my student athletes, but a male athlete can just be ugly. I mean, I I don't know how else to phrase it, but (laughs) for the success of a female athlete, she, she's repeatedly told she has to be marketable. And it, and so I talk about this in the book, but one of the reasons that the women of the WNBA struggle um, in, in terms of getting sports fans is because Society really doesn't want to look at larger, muscular women. And isn't that something to say? And so it's no coincidence that the more feminine the female athlete appears, the more popular the sport. And that's, so that's, you know, and then of course to the 2020 Olympic Games when the Norwegian volleyball team was penalized for uh, changing their uniform. But, you know, beach volleyball players, of course, wear the bikinis and the men wear the long shorts. But people don't realize the sands get up to 120 degrees and these women are in bikinis. And so when they finally said enough, we're going to wear more clothing, they were penalized. And but the men, of course. Yeah. So there's there's little things like that that go on. And and then just yesterday, there was a story that broke out of um, a small town in Alabama and an all girls fifth grade basketball team beat all the boys in a championship and they um they have been refused the privilege of being called champion or getting a, t- a trophy oh, you know it's like, yeah. really it's 2023 yeah. give them the dang trophy boy so I, yeah there's yeah there's I, perceptions that we just don't like the idea we don't like the idea of a, a female athlete being too muscular or beating the boys or you know yeah so there's, we definitely have a way to go, but boy, have we come a long way. 
Well, that that is great to know, and I I cannot uh, wait to read the book, uh, When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World, by our guest today, Alexandra Allred. And uh, Alexandra, I'd love to have you back sometime. We you know, there'd be never enough time to cover uh, everything that uh, that you have uh, written in the past. But uh, what are you working on now? Actually, a sequel to this book because ah. so much got edited out. Right. Um, so I want to I want to talk about women in on the battlefields as well. As wow. I think that's incredibly interesting. But it has been a pleasure talking to a Hall of Fame. Hello, winter sport hockey player. <laughs> well, not a player, but a broadcaster. I would never get into, uh, yes. into the Hall of Fame with my playing ability, but as, as, as a broadcaster, I'll... I, yes, I, sorry. I, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yes, That's hockey. okay. Yes. That's okay. <laughs> Alexandra, thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, alexandraallred.com is the website. And uh, hope you'll join us thank again you. sometime, Alexandra. I'd love it. I'd love it. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. And that will do it for this edition of uh, Kale and Company right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. If you missed any of the program today or just want to hear it again, tune in tonight right after 7 o'clock on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Make it a great day, everybody.